0: We're going to go through the Book of Romans, so we're transitioning to our Prezi slide. And I think one thing I'm just really grateful for is all the people who have come around our church and have taught us over the last six weeks. As you know, I've been out of commission with baby. And so we've had, like, yeah, Dr. Ken, uh, Ken Yeh up here, Paul, Patrick, Jake twice, and I, I think, um, for me, I just feel super blessed that we have all these different teaching voices and that we get to not only hear them preach, but be a part of their lives. And so really thankful for them. Now I'm back on the saddle, so whether you like it or not, I'll be preaching a lot over the next two months. I know. Um, last week, Jake had these uh, pictures. Uh, man, clickers, right? Um, does it? No? Am I not pointing correctly? Okay, there we go. So Jake has these uh, pictures up, and he asked us, like, how are these photos related? And we talked about different things. And then this week, I have um, these set of photos. And um, I thought his was, like, way too easy. (laughs) So how do these symbols, uh, what do these symbols represent, and what do they have in common? Anyone have a guess? You just have to read my mind, that's it pretty easy. It's the book of Romans. Isn't that awesome? So uh, each, cha- each um, picture has a different symbol for different chapters in Romans. And I hope that in our whole heart is that as we go through our time um, in our preaching segment, that it wouldn't just be my opinion or good stories I have to share, but that will really get to know the Bible better. And so if you could walk away having like a framework for the book of Romans, I'll be really excited, okay? Only I'll be excited, but that's good enough. So the first finger is, uh, Paul says hi, and then he just starts pointing out every sin in the world, right? And he says they, uh, the wrath of God is being poured out on them, and he names all kinds of people, right? Evildoers. Uh, idolaters, slanderers, people who disobey their parents, and the Roman church that he just said hi to is nodding. They're really excited about how Paul's condemning all these other people, and then Paul kind of flips the script on them. He turns the table, and he says, when you point at someone else, there's actually three fingers pointing back. Remember elementary school? And he's like, when you pass judgment on these other people, that, that point is how you will be judged. And I think about Paul, me and him, we had a beer like a couple of nights ago and he talked about parenting and he said, you know, you just feel like a hypocrite when you parent because you tell your kids to share and then you realize that you're kind of selfish and you don't really want to share with people or you tell your kids not to fight and then you like beat up on your wife a little bit, right? Maybe not physically, maybe physically, but you fight worse with your wife than your, your kids have ever fought with each other. And over and over again, um, as we parent, we find that, man, it's easy to say what's right, but there's a disconnect between what we say and what we do. And that's what Paul's pointing out, that even the religious leaders, even the Pharisees, have, when they really self-reflect, they realize that, man, they're messed up too, right? That they can teach the law perfectly, but they can't actually do it. And then we have, uh, next slide, Oh, maybe if I just... Did you press it or did I press it? I pressed it. So this is Daryl in Walking Dead. He's like in prison. And it's, very, it's a very sad episode. Um, but we think about our sin and how all of us are sinners, right? God kind of puts us all on the same plane and we deserve death. We, are, we punch Negan in the face, right? And uh, we're in the cell and uh, we're being punished, and we feel that inwardly, but we also anticipate that um, in every religion, we kind of anticipate the consequences of evil. And and God could have just ended the book there, like, you're all screwed, you're all going to hell, and we're done here. But instead, he introduces Jesus um, in chapter 3, and he talks about how Jesus intervenes, he dies on the cross for our sin, and we can be set free. And then he answers all of the Jews that feel disconnected from this book, right? They're like, oh, this is another religion then. I don't really have to pay attention. And then Paul kind of does this throwback all the way to Abraham, the founder of the Jewish faith. A lot of people attribute it to him. And he said, actually, Abraham wasn't a good Jew because of the laws that he kept. He was a good Jew because he put his faith in God that it was actually his trust and his faith in God that gave him righteousness. And this is a big deal because he's now incorporating all of the Jewish religion into the Christian religion. Being a true Jew means that you rely on God for your salvation. And if you think about it, it would be like saying, you know, I found some documents about Jesus' teaching and he believes in Santa right? He sat around with his disciples during Christmas and said, guys, Santa's real, you know, and he's going to deliver presents, right? And like, if the founder of our religion we found believed in Santa, we would all have to rethink what this Christian faith is about and somehow incorporate Santa into it, which we all want to do, especially uh, this month, right? And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, Abraham... His righteousness came from faith, and he reframed the whole Jewish religion. You know, forgiveness didn't come by obeying the law. Forgiveness didn't even come by your sacrifice of of lambs. That was all symbolic. This whole sacrificial system was symbolic of what Jesus would do to pay for your sins that was retroactive to the moment that you were killing this lamb. You just didn't know it yet. It wasn't the lamb that forgave you. So this was like mind-blowing to all the Jews. That's chapter 4. And then chapter 5 talks about salvation. It's a point in time in which we give our lives to Jesus, justification. He forgives us of our sin. Chapter 6 talks about the sanctification process, right? That even though our sins are forgiven, it doesn't give us this free pass to sin anytime we want. That if we're truly saved, if we truly given our lives to Jesus, he starts reforming our lives. We start to look more and more like him. We, we put death, uh, uh, we put our sins to death, and we start living a new life. And then chapter 7 is Paul's deep reflection on how difficult it is to put death to sin, Uh, Some people interpret it as this Judeo view that Paul has in trying to live a good Jewish life without the Spirit pre-conversion. Other people say it's the straw man that he's putting up and beating up on. But I've come to a position where I think it's him. I think it's him grappling in moments of his salvation where he's trying with his will to do good, to follow scripture, to follow the law of God, and failing. And he's deeply frustrated. The apostle Paul understands what you're going through, where you're like, man, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know that I'm not supposed to lie anymore, that I'm supposed to turn off this website, that I'm not supposed to gossip here, that I'm not supposed to be greedy, that I'm not supposed to fly off the handle with anger, but I just can't do it, right? Have you ever felt just really angry at yourself or at other people because you just can't do it. And then Romans 8 is this wonderful passage where he gives another solution um, beyond the law, beyond us just trying harder. Oh, I think if I do this, it works. So before we go on to the rest of the, the sermon or the real sermon, What advice would you give to help someone stop sinning? Right. So, if you sat next to someone and someone's like, "Man, I really want to stop sinning," what would you what would you say to them? And then also, if you could get rid of one sin or bad habit by two thousand seventeen, what would it be? So, I just we're gonna we do this every Sunday. If you could grab one or two people next to you, if you came as a pair, if you could grab one more person, so you know you meet someone. We'd love for you to just share some of these um, share on some of these questions. I'll give you two or three minutes and then I'll come back up and finish my hour sermon. <laughs> All right, here we go so um when we look at Romans seven and um i and and a lot of Romans and we and Paul touches on this on Romans eight, we see that the law is good but cold, and I think that. Um, we feel that, so the law talks about what 's evil, it gives us the standard of good, but it doesn 't help us to do good. It just kind of leaves us there, so it reveals our sin, and then, in its revelation of our sin, we want to sin more, right We become fence hoppers like jake it 's like we see the we see the sign, and we 're like oh there 's a sign there let 's let 's go hop this fence and then also, the law is good but cold in that it, um, let's see, it shows us God's standard, but it doesn't really help us to reach it. So it shows us the standard of God, and it's like, good luck, hope you get there, and everyone's like, dang it, I'm screwed, right? And that's, again, Romans 1 and 2. But, and, and that's Paul's struggle in Romans 7. He's like, I'm trying my best when it's just me and the law, when that's the only two factors in play, I see the law, I understand the law, but there's this coldness to it where I still do what I do not want to do or I still um, struggle with sin and and I don't see freedom. And then chapter 8 comes along and it says, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Jesus the law of the spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. And I love this little phrase, and I say it over myself all the time, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I feel like that's, oh man, I almost died there. Okay. Um, I feel like that's kind of the, the, some of how we're trying to resolve our own guilt. By saying that there's no condemnation, there's a lot of people who've offered a lot of different ways to do that, right? I went through therapy, and I had a good therapist. But there's other therapists who are like, it's your parents' fault. That's why, (laughs) you know, you're messed up. Go blame your parents. There's no condemnation for you. Take all of that condemnation and push it into your mom, right? It's her fault. And other people will say, okay, leave condemnation behind, leave guilt and shame behind by just forgetting the past, by kind of pretending you've never done those things that you feel guilty about and just putting it away, putting it aside. And other religions is like, go do penance, right? Go um, go to this temple or go to this mountain, give money, usually money's involved, and, uh, you know, feel terrible about yourself or, or do these r- religious rituals. And I think as Christians, we've learned our own ways of doing these very things. That when I... Guilty about something when I condemn myself, I start to make all these promises that I'll never, ever, ever sin again. Or I try to do penance by reading 14 chapters of the Bible this morning, or playing worship songs till I cry, or helping an old lady across the street. Right? There's all these ways that we try to get rid of condemnation, but when you look at the rest of uh, the first part of chapter 8, Paul says, If you want to be free of condemnation, First, look at what Jesus has done. It's not about you. It's about God. And I um, I love David's psalms where he does this incredible sin of committing adultery, then murdering her husband. And God convicts him, and when he repents, he says, Forgive me, O God, according to your unfailing love. And... I think for me, I say, forgive me, O God, according to my better behavior, my self-lashing, my um, will to do better. But David removes himself, and all he sees is God. You forgive me because of yourself. And that's what Paul's saying here. We are free from condemnation not because we've done yoga enough or meditated or forgot or blamed our parents. But because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is just me and the law and how I've, I fall short of it. But the law of the Spirit says that Christ has died for me. See, in verse 3, it says what the law was powerless to do because of its coldness, because it's, it's sterile, it just hangs over us, it's not, it doesn't forgive us, it doesn't help us get better... Because it was weakened by our flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, so that he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness, righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so Paul encourages us to take our sin, right? We talked about what's the sin that you want to get rid of in 2017? And I bet you have a sin that you told people, and then you have the other sin that dominated your headspace, and you're like, I can't say this one. (laughs) You know, I can't say porn because, you know, it's just inappropriate to say porn at church. So that's the one that you're really holding. And I want you to hold that one. And instead of walking towards the path of condemnation, walking toward the path of self reliance and the law, remembering what Jesus has done and saying, man, he forgave me by becoming a sin offering. He died on the cross for me. And I hope that that's one of the first things you'll do as you hold on to your sin, that you'll bring it to the cross. And not in this generic, like, um, Christian answer way, but for me, when I feel like my sin overwhelms me, I remember Gethsemane and how Jesus says, not my will, but your will. And he lets these soldiers take them in And beat him. And say hail to the king as they put a robe on him and put thorns on his head and mocked him and spat on him and punched him. I remember the lashes that he took. The nails that was driven through his fingers. The way that he cried, Abba Father, why have you forsaken me? And when you take your sin to that cross and that Jesus, I hope it starts looking really small and I hope that the grace of God overwhelms it. I ask myself, is my sin greater than the cross? Is that why I feel condemned? Is that why I feel like I have to do penance or to whip my own soul? Because the lashing of Jesus wasn't enough. And then there's the second part of actually receiving the forgiveness. Taking it before the cross, letting His grace wash over our sin. But then I still feel at times that I'm confessing the same sin like the 16th time. Have you ever said God forgive me more than once for the same thing over and over again? I've learned to say God help me to stop saying forgive me and help me to start saying you have forgiven me. And there's so many times that I've messed up in life and I get haunted by those memories And I know I've said sorry, but it's just that condemnation that isn't from the Lord. And I'm learning to say, you've forgiven me. Help me to take that in. Help me to truly receive that. Whatever the other sin you didn't share was, would you just come before the cross and see it overwhelm that sin and believe it's bigger. Would you, after asking forgive, whatever the other sin was, would you, after asking forgi- forgiveness, believe that you are forgiven? Evil, but he's has where we bubble wrap everything and we're like, okay, I just don't want to sin. But, Je- but Jesus is the decision he makes. And he takes all of that good that he's done and he says, He's met the law, not just for himself, but for all of us. And that it's fully, like, we get his righteousness. That everything that Jesus does that's right is imputed or given to us. And that's how we stand before the Father. And so as I look at my sin, I ask, is this what's defining my relationship with God? And in the the habitual sins that I've wrestled with and still wrestle with, it has. When I fall, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm his son, but I'm one of the crappy sons, you know, that, that hides in the closet. And, you know, the visitors come over and they're like, I only have two sons and not three because, <laughs> you know, I'm hiding in the closet. That's how I feel sometimes. And then when I'm, but, and then is my relationship with God also defined by my righteousness? That when I preach a good sermon or when you uh, help someone who's poor that you're like, God loves me, hello. God loves me because I'm good. And Paul takes all of that away, and he says, again, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. So why am I trying so hard to be a good Christian? Why am I trying so hard to be about what I do right and do wrong instead of being just about his his kid? Like, I'm his kid. My son Liam is in the back room hiding from all of your viruses, but you could still hang out with him. Um, (laughs) I, always, I never knew why like, parents have their kid in their carts. I'm like, I'm like opening their thing. Can I hold him? And they're like, no, this is a shield from you. Anyways, uh, I'd love for you to meet Liam, by the way. And um, I'm like holding, holding Liam or just watching him. I'm just like, man, I love this kid. He hasn't done anything except for make some facial expressions, poo, pee, sleep, and eat. And I just love him. And... Um, That's how God sees us, right? Isn't isn't that how God sees us? That we're just his kid and he loves us. I think that when we look at the sanctification process, uh, when we look at what we do with our sin, I hope that the first thing we do is that we remember the cross and remember that we are righteous because of Jesus. The second part of chapter 8, verse um, 5 and 9, 5 through 9, it talks about the Holy Spirit. And this is a big deal because all of Romans from chapter 1 to chapter 7 mentions the Holy Spirit twice. But in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is brought up 20 times. And that's, man, and that's why I think that Romans chapter 7 is trying to live the Christian life without the Spirit. But the Spirit is such a huge part of our sanctification. And and Paul here shifts the language from chapter 7, trying to do, trying to um, have these external goals and behaviors to meet the law. But in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit comes and he says, it's about your mindset and it's about your relationship. That when it's just me and the law, it's about me performing. But when you insert the Spirit, He comes in and He holds our hand and He coaches us and He helps us to be better. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. You know, he takes us out of this whole system of me and some moral code, and he says, Jesus forgives you, and as you progress, it's about this relationship, where the Spirit renews our mind, where he reorients what's important to us. And I think that's one of the greatest evidences of being a Christian. It's it's saying, hey, this life isn't about me anymore. It's not about my agenda and my goals and what I want and trying to plug God into that. I think one of the greatest evidences of a Christian is that the Holy Spirit comes and he transforms your mind so that your life is oriented about what he cares about what his agenda is, what his vision for the earth is, and you're trying to figure out how you fit into that. That and that all your goals would be about that. Uh, I I have like three more Liam illustrations, (laughs) my son. And um, and so, you know, people ask like how does having a kid change your life? And I say It's like taking all of the things that you prioritize, like Nina, volleyball. Last time I said renew first. This time I'm changing it. Nina, renew, volleyball, epic. I'm sorry. Nina, renew, epic, volleyball, and um, Netflix, right? I'm really into like uh, designated survivor. And um, anyways, House of Cards, waiting for that to come out. Walking Dead, of course. Anyways, so those are all my priorities. And then you take Liam, my baby. And whether I like it or not, he's shoved at the top, and everything else shifts down, and everything else is sacrificed, gets less attention, and, and suffers, and does I probably everything probably suffers a lot, and um, hence I haven't preached for six weeks, right? And uh, but never mind, sorry, sorry, the preachers, I didn't mean that. Okay, so uh, we pr- we plug Liam at the top, and. Um, and if you're ready, if you're not ready for a kid, it's just frustrating and angering because regardless, it takes a lot of time and attention. But if you are excited for a kid, like all these things suffer, but you don't even notice it. It doesn't really matter that much because you love this other thing more. And being Christian is like that. You know, it's, it's not about trying to do better. It's about the Spirit coming inside of us and us plugging God into the top and everything else shifts down. But if, we, if we're doing it without the Spirit, trying to plug in God to the top, we're like, why do I have to come to church on Sunday? What's this whole reading the Bible and memorizing it? Like, how much time can I not pray and still be a good Christian, right? It's, it's, it's burdensome. It's heavy. It's hard. But when you love God, when the Holy Spirit allows you to love the Father You put them at the top, and it just makes sense, and it's kind of easy, and and everything is done out of joy and love. Let me give you another example for the Spirit coming into our life in a way that's different than the law. I remember being in um, elementary school, and I couldn't read. I couldn't read through my second time in fifth grade. When I see kids reading, I, I think it's a miracle. <laughs> like When a 10-year-old or a 7-year-old is reading, I'm just like, how are you doing that? You're a genius. And they're like, all of my friends can read, you know? <laughs> and so um, I remember there was a spelling bee coming up, and my dad's like, hey, let's win the spelling bee. I'm like, Dad, I know like 15 words, right? I know pronouns, I, you, we, is that right?" Probably- Yes. And then I know prepositions, right? Like in and through was a very long word and around was a long word too. But yeah, anyways. Um, and I remember being in class and, you know, you take turns reading and my turn would start coming up and I'm trying to like, estimate how many paragraphs it is till my turn. I'm like freaking out and cold sweating. And then I I nail it. I get all the pronouns and prepositions correct, right? And I skip all the other words. It was very traumatic. Okay, so my dad's like, hey, I'm gonna teach you how to read. I was like, awesome. And so, you know, he worked really hard at the time. um, And most of his life, he was a restaurant owner. So he'd do like 12 hours of work many days, come home really tired. But he wanted to help me read. And so he'd wake me up at like 1 or 2 a.m. And um, I would sleep from like 7 and he would sleep from like 12. And then he'd wake me up and for four hours we would memorize vocabulary words. But my dad didn't know how to read either very well. Um, He never went to, you know, he grew up in Taiwan. And so we would punch these words into a dictionary that would speak. And that's how we knew what the word sounded like because we had no phonetic skills. And then we would take that word and we would start like remembering the shape of the word as well as writing the word over and over again. That's how you learn Chinese, but not English necessarily. <laughs> but we did that for like three months and my dad was super patient and I like knew lots of shapes that equaled meanings and words. And then I got third place on my spelling bee, which was like, a, like my, my teacher almost killed over. And after that, school became a lot easier because I could kind of read. And so if you are noticing why I misspell a lot of words on anything I write, it's because the shapes are fading. It's really sad. It's fading away. But I think the law and me and me trying to keep the law is kind of like the teacher putting the book in front of me and like, why can't you read? You're in fifth grade, right? And it's my turn to read and I fail. And... I think that can feel like the Christian faith sometimes. That's one version of the Christian faith where it's just a moral code and you got to keep it and when you don't, you suck. But then there's the spirit and he's like a good, good dad. He's like a great coach. God has him live inside of us and he walks with us and he says, hey, um, I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going to meet you where you are. I'm not just going to throw a t- cold textbook at you and expect you to somehow learn how to read. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to help you improve one step at a time. I'm going to change the way you think. I'm going to help you reorient your life with the Lord. And, it's, and the best part is that it's going to be relational. I think the best part about me and my dad's kind of couple months together isn't that I learned how to read but I learned how much he cared about me, how he was willing to sacrifice sleep and be patient, and we drink a lot of tea, and, and we spent time together. And the Christian journey is about that. The Christian journey isn't this focus on how do I get to this level of being a good Christian. Yeah, he's gonna help us be better, but the focus isn't being better, the focus is how we fall in love with the Spirit, and with the Father as we're walking along. It's not cold. It's good and loving. I hope we get to experience the Spirit this way, as it lives inside of us, as we learn to walk with it, as we learn to h- allow our mind and the, c- the most intimate parts of our lives become aligned to the Spirit. Paul doesn't start with what we do or how, or how good we live, but he starts with these, these really intimate aspects of us that our mind would be close to the Spirit and that we would walk with him, that we would live with him. The last passage, part of this passage, is uh, verse 11, or 9 through 11. It says, And if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your moral bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. So chapter 7 is kind of this war against the flesh and the Spirit. But at the end of chapter 8, there's this great promise that as we grow in intimacy with the spirit that we gain this spiritual life and there's more love and there's more peace and there's more joy and all those things start to overflow in us we become more clear in why we're here in our purpose and we live our calling out with precision and we start to be about others instead of ourselves and then there's this other, so as our spirit has more life, we also get older and our body starts to c- decline, right? Our knees give way, for me at like 18. And um, you know, we get weaker. Our son beats us in arm wrestling, which I will dread that day. Um, and, and then, but then what Paul is saying is that one day both will come alive, our spirit and our body. And one day there's this hope that this full person we envision, will, will, we will become it in heaven, on the new earth, that this, this fight against our flesh will cease one day. And I think that's a great promise because sometimes I want to give up, right? Sometimes I'm like, okay, sin's going to win. Like, I'm tired. <laughs> I don't think I can beat this. And then God's like, just keep walking with me. And one day, I will resurrect your body, your soul, and you will be the person that you envision yourself to be, that there's rest one day from this conflict. Um, You know, I have this, I think we're all afraid of death, but I heard this great story, and and I was really encouraged by it, um, how someone died. So I have a friend who's... um, pastor, his parents are pastors, and his grandma was a pastor, and one of the first Christians in her family, really strong Christian, and she got older, and she, but she had this really full prayer life, like she spent more and more time in prayer, and while she cooked for her family, she was able to walk around as well, and she, you could just tell that she loved God, everyone really respected her, and then one day, um, she was in her mid-80s, and they started worshiping in her house uh, for a small group. And so she always joined the small group, and she's standing in worship. And she kind of tugs on her uh, son's shirt, and she says, hey, I'm tired. I'm going to sit down. And in the middle of worship, as she sits down, she passes away. And it's like the most beautiful <laughs> death I've ever heard of. Um, and I think about how, how like this life from her becoming Christian that her life and the spirit continued to grow. And then it's that same spirit, it's Jesus that is the only one who can cross from, life to, from this life to the next life with her, right? There, that, that's the only continuation we really have with no breaks. I love my grandma, and at the door of death, um, I had to leave her. My parents had to leave her. No one can walk through with her. But the spirit that resides in us walks through death. It's the thing we, c- we can carry close in this life and, when, then, and the person that we cannot feel alone because we have as we walk into this next life. And when you know the spirit is alive in you, when you're being transformed by it, when he's being a good father and coach to you, and you're, and you're deeply confident that you're in relationship with him, I think think we can kind of hold his hand and walk through and feel at peace, that he gives us peace. And then in the next life, he raises us up. You know, there's justification, sanctification as we grow in the Lord. And then lastly, there's glorification, where we're made completely whole We stop struggling. We stop fighting the spirit and we're completely one with him. That there's a fullness that happens at the end that we get to look forward to. As we think about the sin we didn't get to share, um, can we get the next slide, Ben? Sorry, my thing's not working. I hope that we could spend time holding up our sin to Jesus' forgiveness and um, gift, sorry, that whole shape thing, gift of righteousness, Um, and as we hold our sin up to that, like, how does our sin look in light of that, and secondly, that we would hold up this place of struggle to the spirit, being a loving father and a coach, and allowing him to grow in intimacy with us through this process, that that's the focus, you know, I, I know, I knew a Christian who was, like, super strong, I really I really like believed in him. I was excited for him to become a pastor. And then he fell away from the Lord. And I, I think what happened was he just got really frustrated with his sin. And he got super angry at why he kept doing the same thing over and over again. And I told him, brother, it's not about the sin. It's about the journey with the spirit, finding that he loves you. What does your sin and journey look in light of that? And lastly, um, there's this hope that he will renew us. Um, and I wonder how our sin looks in light of eternity, where we get to be with the Lord, resurrected, without having to fight anymore. Um, so I would love for us just to spend two, three minutes, again, holding up our sin to all three of these things, and that uh, we would see our ourselves, our sin, and And Jesus, um, and this journey differently. Father, we come to you, and um, (laughs) this church is for imperfect people only. Everyone who walked through this door knew that, and has confessed it. And I pray that this morning you would um, take the parts of us that are most that we feel most condemned by, that we feel most ashamed of. And that we would do some work in our soul to hold it up to your word, to hold it up to what you've done and what you're doing and what you will do.